Hello, this is Harold Lapidus. Welcome to episode four of the Boston Herald podcast. Today's episode focuses on the conclusion of my interview with singer-songwriter Peter Case. If you haven't already heard part one, please feel free to do that now and come back later. In this episode, Peter talks about his experiences as a live performer, including the time he sang a few John Lennon songs at a concert organized by Sir George Martin. Also, we talk about the days when he was roommates with T-Bone Burnett, hanging out with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, his first Bob Dylan show we ever saw, his album Highway 62, his new single and his Kickstarter albums that'll be coming out next year, and some other stuff. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to spend some time talking about someone that uh, died a few days ago. It seems to be a recurring theme here at the podcast, unfortunately, but I guess in some ways not unexpectedly. Uh, his name is Peter Stone Brown. He lost his battle with pancreatic cancer, and uh, he's someone who I first became familiar with when in early 1999, I went on various Dylan fan sites and found one called RMD rec.music.dylan and one of the authoritative voices there was someone named peter stone brown who i was not familiar with beforehand i don't think he was among other things a singer songwriter himself he was a journalist music journalist wrote his own blog at peter stone brown blog uh, so you should check that out he saw dylan a few times in the mid 60s which gave him a little bit more uh, perspective than some of us uh, Johnny come latelys. Uh, I never got to meet him and I never spoke to him on the phone, although we communicated privately and exchanged views on uh, social media. I almost saw him in the early 2000s in the days of flip phones. Uh, we're trying to meet up after Dylan's show I saw down in Pennsylvania, but that didn't happen, unfortunately. He was very insightful, very knowledgeable, a really interesting writer, a lot of interesting perspectives. We didn't always agree on uh, everything, but we certainly agreed to disagree over the years. When I needed help publicizing a Tom Rush movie, No Regrets, which I was doing the PR for, he wrote a little piece on Tom Rush, which was very uh, much appreciated. As I was uh, thinking about what to write, I was looking over various communiques we had, either privately through Facebook or uh, through email. One thing that was not quite uh, evident is he had a very dry sense of humor and once you got that, you got a lot of stuff that he was talking about. A lot of his comments, they were very uh, pithy and to the point. And we had this kind of a running joke about uh, trying to dispel the myths of when the albums Blonde on Blonde and John Mosley Harding were released. Whenever it came up again, I always would make sure uh, Peter saw it one way or another. And, and I think the last time when Blonde on Blonde was mistaken as a May 16th release or whatever the date was, Peter commented on Facebook, I think he said. Oh, my favorite subject. Uh, one of the nicest uh, things he did was uh, a couple of days after I came back from the Bob Dylan Symposium in Tulsa in early June, he let me know that a bandmate of his uh, saw me speak and had very nice things to say. So that was uh, very much appreciated. When I was uh, commenting on something on a performance that he posted on Facebook, he privately sent me his performance of uh, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, the Dylan song, and it was a great version. And I'm going to post that on Facebook as a little tribute. It's kind of sad now because when I have some news that I think you might be interested in, uh, I know I'm not going to hear from him anymore. No more emails, no more Facebook comments, and uh, he will definitely be missed. But he had uh, quite the reputation and left uh, quite a legacy.
And when he did die a few days ago, even though it was expected, obviously, it was still a bit of a shock. A friend of mine told me or emailed me that uh, Peter hoped to be around long enough to see Bob Dylan, presumably in Pennsylvania in November on this tour. But anyway, check out his blog, Peter Stone Brown blog. If you're interested in his writings, he talks about seeing Dylan in the 60s and he interviewed many, many different artists. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of what is now known as Americana. That was his, uh, something he was into when it was happening back in the early 60s. And I also was able to facilitate getting him a vinyl rip of the Blood on the Tracks record store day release. His brother is uh, Tony Brown, the bass player on that album. He's very much a defender of the original version. And uh, I was glad I was able to do that for him. Uh, farewell, Peter, and we will miss your insights. Well, on to other news. The big news is that apparently George Roselli, Bob Dylan's drummer, is out, and he's being replaced by someone named Matt Chamberlain, who has quite an impressive resume, drumming for, among other people, Bruce Springsteen and the Wallflowers. And as I'm recording this, the fall tour of America is about to get underway, so we'll find out soon enough. Uh, speaking of uh, concerts and tickets and so on, uh, I just wanted to give you a little uh, public service announcement. And when Ticketmaster tickets go on sale, there's the default is that there are all these extra add-ons. Uh, so if you're wondering why tickets for the Rolling Stones or Tool in the front sections are $2,000 uh, for the Rolling Stones, they had seven different packages. A Start Me Up package, Jumping Jack Flash package, a Tumbling Dice package, yeah, probably a Gimme Shelter package, who knows. But anyway, that's the default. And when you're rushed to buy tickets to get good seats, they add that. And then when you get there, you're shocked. Either you go for those tickets or you don't. But I'm sure a lot of people feel scammed one way or another, or they just give up, which I know a couple of friends of mine did recently for some of the big shows. So when Ticketmaster tickets go on sale, you'll see something that says clear all on the bottom of your phone, certainly. I'm sure it's on the web as well. Just hit clear all, and then hit standard tickets, and then you'll get the normal expensive tickets instead of the outrageous, obscene ripoff add-ons that you don't want. Unless, of course, you want those add-ons, but uh, I'm willing to bet you you don't. Also, in the news for uh, Bob Dylan fans, I'm sure most of you know this already, but traveling through the next bootleg series by Bob Dylan, Volume 15, it's going to be a triple album, a triple CD, uh, starting with the 1967 recordings, a few of them from John C. Harding and Nashville Skyline on the first disc. Second disc is an expanded version of the Johnny Cash sessions, which expand over to the third disc. And then there's some uh, self-portrait outtakes and Earl Scruggs review television appearance. The only complaint I have so far, even though I haven't heard it, is that like the new Abbey Road box set, it's a triple album and a triple CD, and that means there's probably 80 minutes of music that they could have added, and they didn't onto the CD. I guess that's the way it's going to go from now on. Uh, CDs are being outsold by records these days, so I guess the powers that be feel that, well, why don't we just make everything records and CDs are going to be like cassettes <laughs> as the secondary format, and they'll have, they'll have to conform to what vinyl is. Yeah, I've heard some grumbling about other Johnny Cash sessions. Uh, first of all, they're expanded, and so we'll hear a lot more than we already have heard. 
I guess there are some people that aren't that thrilled with these uh, 1969 sessions in Nashville. I've always thought they were awesome. It's just the interaction of those two guys, especially at that time. It was recorded early in the year, and it was going to be a big year for both of them. Bob Dylan's going to have a hit with Lay Lady Lay, and Johnny Cash was going to have a, his biggest hit, I think, uh, A Boy Named Sue. Just the way the two of them interact with each other, their voices are so uh, different that on uh, One Too Many Mornings, they change keys every verse so that they can both sing in their range. There's a lot of humor, uh, particularly on the song A Careless Love. And also at the end, when Johnny Cash tries to get Bob Dylan to sing some gospel-type songs, Bob tries to sing along, but he doesn't really know them. Anyway, it's an interesting dynamic, and uh, I'll be interested to hear uh, the rest of this stuff. On the bright side, it's only three CDs, three albums, so after the 14-CD box set of the Rolling Thunder Review and six CDs of Blown the Tracks, uh, maybe uh, a triple album uh, is a good idea. And then hopefully they'll do a street legal bootleg, which only I'm thinking of and a few of my friends. <laughs> I've uh, listened to the Abbey Road box set a few times so far. Again, aside from the the fact that they could, certainly could have added another hour or more of uh, music, it does give a great feel for the sessions. There's a lot of lightheartedness and laughing and so on. And most of this stuff has not been heard before, at least by me, and I have a lot of stuff. Or if it is something that's not there, it's, it, it's a little bit uh, expanded. Like you have for uh, Come and Get It by Paul McCartney, you hear the little bit of talking beforehand. And at the beginning of You Never Give Me Your Money, I take, you hear a reference to a Walnetto, which is a laugh-in reference. So it puts you right in a 1969 when that was a hit program, uh, quoting Artie Johnson and the skit he used to do with Ruth Buzzy. So that was kind of fun. So it's great to listen to. I just wish there was more of it. And I opted for the CDs just because it had the booklet. I can just upload everything to my computer and then let's do it in my car instead of having to listen to it at home, even though uh, the vinyl is probably superior. Getting back to the uh, holy trinity of musicians in the uh, 60s, we've had Bob Dylan, we have the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones are releasing a live uh, video and albums and CDs. Bridges to Buenos Aires from 1998, and it features Bob Dylan joining the group. Uh, he was a support act on some shows back then. Dylan would appear during this Stones set, and he would uh, perform like a Rolling Stone, which the Rolling Stones had recently covered on their album uh, Stripped, where the Rolling Stones basically did their own version of Unplugged, and one of the songs they performed was like a Rolling Stone. So there you go. So quite a bit of uh, Bob to look forward to. And now we're ready for uh, the Peter Case interview, part two, the final part, the sequel. So Peter starts talking about his early days as a live performer and his days as a street singing musician and uh, some stuff about the nerves and the plimsolls. Well, you know, I was, all I was trying to say is I came from being a street musician when, when uh, you know, I, I was a street musician. We were playing 12 hours a night out there and I got really comfortable playing for people and breaking the ice with people. And so I, I, it made it very easy. You know, I'm, I'm shy when I go into a room, but when I, when, I, when I get on stage, I feel really comfortable 
And I think that's from all the time spent playing on the street where I was like learning my craft, but also just being in front of people and having to break the ice with a new group of people every few minutes. And then when the, when the Plimso started up, it was a similar sort of thing. You know, I wanted to have a band that had the songs that the Nerves had, but then I wanted to uh, have a the play, a band that could play, actually, you know, <laughs> you know the Nerves. You know, we, we were better songwriters than players. And uh, I wanted to have a band that could also blow, have the songs, you know, but then be able to blow the roof off the club and we did that we became a very popular club draw but we've gone back to we'd started playing uh five sets a night at, at a place in El Monte Doug Sugarman is the place and so uh, you know you get a strength from that kind of playing and just comfort with people and comfort with music and just the ability to you know play for people when they're dancing and just all sorts of other things that that you know requests and endurance and a lot of different things that you get from that type of playing that really did pay off when I finally got around to going out as a solo, for example, or the plimsolls. And so that, it's that kind of background that, that, that really, I think, helps musicians out. I've noticed that a lot of my favorite musicians did some time as street musicians, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a powerful way to break in, you know. The pay is terrible a lot of the time, but, but it is interesting. I reminded Peter of the show I saw at Atwood's Tavern in Cambridge back in March and how an audience member not only requested the song a million miles away, but wanted to come up and sing it with him. And Peter went along with it, so I asked him about that and the uh, spontaneity of a live concert. Yeah, yeah, you can just go with it. and Every every show is unique. They're all different. And, it can go, and all, all sorts of odd things can happen. You know, one time I took the whole club out the front door of a club, and we went we went down the streets and uh, singing. I ain't got no home in this world anymore to like the apartment buildings with the people in them. You know, I mean, you never know what's gonna. That was a long time ago, but I mean, you know, things. Spontaneity is a great thing in life, and being able to do something like that, it's just fun. You know, it, it, it's the, it's the the sparkle of life. You know, real life is all spontaneous. So it's neat when the music can also reflect that on stage. Next, I asked Peter about the time he sang a few John Lennon Beatles songs at a concert organized by Sir George Martin. And like most of Peter's stories, things didn't go as smoothly as planned. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, the weird thing was I had this gig I'd booked. um, I got a call from the Getty Museum to book a gig on a Friday night um, at the Getty Museum. And I was supposed to curate this thing where the artists would write about some of the paintings or photographs in the Getty Museum, photographs. So, okay, I'll do that. It was a weird gig. And so I booked Frank, Stu from the Negro Problem, Bob Newworth, and Cindy Lee Berryhill. And we did a show at the thing. So that was all set up to go. And then I get another call, like, what are you doing Friday, the such and such? George Martin is, wants you to sing with, you know, they want you to do the John Lennon vocals for uh, uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, I already booked, you know, this other thing, right? So, like, are you free? Yeah, I'm free. I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? I'm, like, double booked on this thing. And so uh, the way it turned out, you know, so they, so they had to go to this meeting, and they go to this big hangar. I think it was, like, on the one of the big lot, Warner Brothers lot or one of the big lots, like, out in Burbank. And I go in there, and there's nobody in there. There's just one guy in there. It's just George Martin sitting at a piano. And I walk in there, and he's like, you know, it's here, you know, so I... I, he played piano and I sang uh, All You Need Is Love. What did I sing? Uh, I'm the Walrus, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, 
and all you need is love, like psychedelic Beatles. So I sang with it. It was like the L.A. Philharmonic, a huge choir that they George Martin conducting. Um, Andy Summers and uh, the drummer from the Police were there, uh, and the Bangles were singing, and I sang those songs. But like I had to get for, all the way from from the Getty Museum. I had to get and t- show up in time at the Hollywood Bowl, and like I hadn't told anybody, but it, they were not scheduled. Exa- they were scheduled on the same night, but like I. Did did the thing at the uh, Hollywood book, at the at the Getty, and I had somebody to drive me, and so I, there everybody's like shaking hands and saying goodnight and all this stuff, and I just ran out the door, I left that, jumped in the car, go, and the guy went, we went up and got on Mulholland Drive and then drove all the way down to like Hollywood, from uh, the 405, like going like bad out of hell, and then we we get to the uh, Hollywood Bowl and like we get we go right in, and pull up behind. And then they're already doing the show, and I come running up, and I get there just in time to sing my stuff. So I come running in the back door. It's time for me to go on, and I come in, and I'm wearing like uh, like this shiny kind of like gold made jacket, and like this weird kind of like hat, and, uh, like a straw hat, and uh, you know, I look real casual. And like I look out, like everybody's in like tuxedos and stuff. I'm like oh no, and I go out there, and then immediately I'm on like the the. There's like 20,000 people there, and I'm on the um, stadium view. And then I start singing uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, with looking at George Martin. And I just all of a sudden had this huge acid flashback. Like, I just, uh, like, started to melt down. But I didn't, like, I just sang, the, you know, I didn't let on, but I'm just like, I'm freaking out, man. Like, this is just so weird. Like, this can't even be real. It was very strange. And uh, I guess you could call it an anxiety attack. So anyhow, it went away, and I enjoyed it, and it was really fun to sing, and like the crowd reacted great, and George Martin was super cool. But he had this one thing at the rehearsals. He had this thing where at the end of the song, he had this like upbeat where you go, goo 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 you know, it was a kind of weird beat. And I got, what are you doing it like? And I couldn't, I didn't want to argue with George Martin, but like that's, I couldn't do it, and it was really difficult. He goes, Peter, it's very easy. It's like goo 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 you know, it was a kind of offbeat. And I and he goes, trust me, this like it's a huge reaction from the crowd, and like you know, we've done this, we did it in Tel Aviv, you know, with the people, and we did it all, like do it, because it was a benefit for the LA Film Mark, and they did it for Tel Aviv too. He goes like, do it, and just work with me. And I couldn't get it right, and I never got it right at the rehearsals, and they had a big dress rehearsal and everything, and I screwed it up every time, and I never did it right. And George Martin, um, he says, when we get to the gig, just watch me. Just to go with me. It's going to be all right. Just do it. So we get there in front of 20,000 people, and, and uh, I'm like, oh, God, here we go. And, like, we did, you know, I'm the walrus, and we're doing the whole thing, and there's this whole choir back there, goo goo and all this stuff. Super psychedelic. And then at the very end of it, he just looks at me, and he like, you know, it was like Gandalf the Wizard or something. He just looks at me like, you will do this correctly. And I'm like, I go, goo 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 I did it right once, and that was it. And the whole place like, yeah. It was like, it sounded huge in this place, the way he had it. So he knew what he was doing, but man, it was uh, nerve-wracking. But uh, it was a trip. In the mid-1980s, T-Bone Burnett was Peter Case's roommate. And when I brought this up, Peter told me the story of an interesting phone call he received. Me and T-Bone lived together in this place called the Taj Mahal Apartments in uh, Fort Worth, and so we each had our room, and I get, there's a phone in my room, and the phone rings, I pick it up, and this guy's like, T-Bone there? 
I go, no, he's out right now. He go, well, tell him legendary call. Like, <laughs> 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 see, man, some guy called legendary just called here, man. I go, oh, that's legendary star this cowboy. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the legendary Stardust Cowboy had a very influential cult hit with the song Paralyzed, and T-Bone Burnett was the drummer, actually, and the Stardust part of the name was appropriated by David Bowie for a Ziggy Stardust character. I asked Peter about the first time he ever saw Bob Dylan. That led to a story about hanging around with, among other people, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I didn't see him. I don't think I saw him. I don't think I saw him until he was playing with Petty. I saw, he did a thing at the Forum one night, and I was there. I think I'd met him, actually, before I saw him play. Uh, at T-Bone's birthday party. T-Bone turned 40, if you can imagine that. It's like, he's old, T-Bone's old. <laughs> he came out in 86, but we were working together in 85, and I think T-Bone's 40th would have been 85. So, yeah, I shouldn't see Dylan play until, uh, until then, and then I saw him play with Tom Petty in Buffalo at Rich Stadium in 86 on 4th of July which was a great gig, and he played uh, this incredible rock and roll song that I think is a Warren Smith song, Radiation Rock or something. Uranium like Uranium Rock, rock yeah. <laughs> It was so great the way they played it. You know, I knew Benmont a little bit, and I knew Mike, and I knew Stan, so I knew those guys. I knew Petty. Mm-hmm. Petty already played with the Plimsolls at that point. We backed him up. He came out and joined us on stage at a gig, you know, and so... Uh, he loved the Plimsolls, he told me. And you got a great band. He was like always mad at his band. And uh, <laughs> one of these always mad stands. You know, they were always, uh, we did a gig with Petty one time, and I won't go into all that stuff. But uh, Stan was a friend. I, I hang around with him a lot. And um, Ben, I used to go to Ben's house and play piano. Mm-hmm. And we'd sit up, and he was living in the valley, and we'd sit around and play a little bit. And then uh, he, he, he's a really great piano player. And then Mike played on that first record. So I went and saw those guys on that Dead show. At, at, with Bob Dylan and, and, uh, at Rich Stadium. But, you know, Bob Dylan was fantastic at that gig. It was really good. And then, uh, you know, so that's when I saw him. A few years ago, back in 2015, Peter released an album called Highway 62, HWY 62. It was interesting that so many of the issues that he brought up were relevant today. And I asked him about that, starting with the song Pelican Bay. Yeah, that's about the people in prison, you know, about a guy in prison in solitary confinement, you know, which is like such a torture. And so I guess I write these songs because you hear about them and they just kind of blow your mind. You know, they just make you just stop the clock when you hear about, like you think about like what people are going through. You know, not everybody in solitary confinement, you know, this like some people are just there because they've associated with a gang, like they know somebody, you know, you can go in there when there's no, like I say, there's no, so no, ju- you know, no court watching over it. And some people are there, it's just nightmarish. It's bad. It's unhumane condition. But I don't know. Just because I felt it, you know, I had to write the song about it. A lot of that record, it was done in 2015. It's kind of, you know, the same now. Like for most of the issues on that record, you know, like Water from the Stone, you know, and stuff. You know, it talks about six year old kids having to talk to judges. Well, what's going on today, you know, tomorrow, you know? Uh, but it was going on in 2015 in San Francisco, so I already knew about it. So. So that album was called Highway 62, which brings to mind, of course, Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. And I asked him about the title and about the real Highway 62 and how it relates to Bob Dylan's Highway 61. Yeah, it was sort of a joke because uh, uh, it goes from uh, the bridge out of Juarez, comes across and lands in El Paso, and then you're on Highway 62. And it goes all the way up to the bridge into Canada up on uh, Niagara Falls. 
is Highway 62. So it goes from Canada and it's the uh, internet, you know, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it goes from Canada to uh, longest east-west highway connecting Mexico and Canada and goes through all the, and then when you look into it, it goes through all these incredible places, kind of tertiary uh, off the, you know, it's not like a big major cities that much. A lot of musicians were on it. So Highway 61 obviously has like incredible background history as a music highway, but you know, Highway 62, it was sort of a joke a little bit because we had to have a record name pretty quick. And we just came up with it, oh, that's cool, Highway 62, but I grew up one block from it and I did try to run away down it when I was like, you know, five or something and my sisters dragged me back. I was, I was, I was obsessed with trucks and I wanted to go down in there and I was gonna. I was mad. Something happened, and I was gonna leave. Go, go down that road, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and they brought me back crying. And I remember, and uh, I remember looking back, and here they come. They're gonna get me. You know, it was all these trucks running down that up and down that road. It goes through the. The first thing it does is it left leaves where I like. I was south of Buffalo. Girf, me and Gurf grew up right off of Highway 60. That was like like I said, one block off of it, the block off of it, and. It goes right through the middle of town and out towards up in the Buffalo. But you go the other way and it goes down through the uh, Seneca Indian Reservation. And then down down to, uh, and then it takes a right, you know, down by uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. And heads over towards uh, Texas. So, yeah, so that's what that, you know. It was an idea sort of of a side of the country, a different sort of side. You know, it was a bit of a play on Highway 61 revisited, but... And I don't know why, but uh, that was an important idea to me. But but then Highway 62, you know, it's sort of a joke. Like, like the next album's Highway 63 or something. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't do that. All right, so next I asked Peter about the Williams brothers, Andrew Williams and his brother David. They are the nephews of Andy Williams, but they are musicians and producers in their own right. So I asked about their collaboration and Andrew producing him. Yeah, they, yeah they, that's the same guy. He produced three records for Vanguard. And the thing that people don't know is he was on A Million Miles Away. He was playing in the Plimsolls on A Million Miles Away. He's all over that record singing harmony and playing organ on that track. And uh, he used to play Go On The Road with us, Andrew. And so and David, too, for that matter. So I knew those guys pretty good. But, they, yeah, they were great, you know, real talented, you know, kind of an Everly Brothers sound, real tight harmonies, beautiful songs. Andy's a great guy. He was a great got to work with in the studio he's really uh, a, a, a good producer I don't know what he's doing right now I know he produced he makes you know he's done a lot of different things you know he had some hits with Five for Fighting a couple of different people you know different things but um, he was great to work with he was an old friend of mine I don't see him that much anymore he's married has a kid he's like doing working for Warner Bros for a while I'm not sure but he was great yeah the next thing I asked Peter about it was a bit of a self-indulgence I don't know how many people out there know who Tom Hobson is, but one of my favorite albums of all time is an album by Yorma Kalkinen called Qua, Q-U-A-H, and it is a collaboration with Tom Hobson. I believe originally it's supposed to be an album split half and half between the two of them, but I guess the record company didn't go for that. So uh, Tom has a couple of songs, and if you get the reissued CDs, there's even more songs. But he's kind of a mysterious guy, and... Peter knew him, so I asked him to tell me about him. So I was playing on the street in San Francisco, and I met Mike Wilhelm from the Charlatans. And Mike said, hey, man, you could, you know, let's go up to the coffee gallery, man. I'm going to show you this place. So we, we walk across town, and we go up to the coffee gallery, and like that's like this scene where it's like beat poets, you know, and Janis Joplin had played there at one point. Everybody read there, but now it's like, like a folk club, and it's, it's on a folk circuit, and there's people playing there all the time. Uh, J.C. Burris, who was like uh, Sonny uh, Terry's 
nephew, he was there all the time, and then like other people, all kinds of people were dropping in all the time. We used to go down there and play open mic, you know. I can't remember every, it's like every night there was some sort of open mic during the weekdays, and it would always be packed with people and people playing. And Tom would, Tom Hobson was somebody I met there. He would play there every night, every time there was a possibility. He would come down there and they would, um, you'd pass the hat at it, you know. They give you like two pints of beer, which was great. And, and uh, you know, we were out living on a shoestringer at that point. And so, you know, it was kind of like dinner. It was like a dark beer. And, like, you know, you pass the hat and buy a slice of pizza or something. And that was it, you know. Smoke a joint with Wilhelm in the doorway and, like, everything was fine, you know. But Hobson was there, and we started talking all the time. And so he, I learned a lot from him and talked to him all the time about music and flat picking. And he, at that time, I was flat picking. And he told me that what I was doing on the guitar was imitating finger picking with a flat pick. And so, which was a, you know, he, he got what I was trying to do, but you know, like why don't you just finger pick, you know? And then Wilhelm taught me to finger pick with a thumb pick on the thumb, you know? And uh, Tom was playing bluegrass, but also a lot of old time songs. He was playing uh, No Mail Today. He used to play the White Trash song by Steve Young. Or maybe I used to play that, but he knew it and we played it together. I, that, like those were some of the songs we played on the street. We had this incredible repertoire on the street with all these guys, and you, you had to play the White Trash song by Steve Young, and uh, there's some Jerry Jeff you had to play, you know. Uh, M is for uh, the mud flaps she gave me for my birthday, you know, that song by Jerry Jeff. Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, and all this kind of. So we played a lot of that different kind of thing. But Tom was uh, just a really committed, great. Uh, I guess you would say he was bluegrass and old time music, and uh, he would never. I used to always try to borrow his guitar, and he would never let me borrow his guitar. I'd look at your guitar. So my, I'd be out playing on the street, and I was just you know, drunk and thrashing him a lot of the time. But he, he was really friendly and really a nice person, really just a beautiful guy, and uh, inspiring to be around. He loved music and the lore of music. And so like these, both Wilhelm and Tom were guys that taught me about the lore of like the music. And like the lore is so important, so you get to feel right, you know? And, and, that's, and he knew all about that. Um, he used to do that song, Life Gets Tejas, Don't It? Which is, I don't know if it's Tom T. Hall or uh, it was one of his songs he used to do, do all the time. It was a really funny song. And uh, he said a bunch of them, you know, they were all great. And he knew Yorma, but I, I don't, never knew Yorma. Yorma didn't come out to that play. He was a rock and roller, but rock star. But like those guys uh, were just really, really cool guys. Wilhelm was a great person. Tom died early. You know, I didn't realize Tom, I left. San Francisco, and I didn't see Tom again, you know. But then I realized he died. It was uh, upsetting. He was just a super cool cat. There's like a Tom Hobson album, like of just him playing. And that's pretty good. I mean, it's really good. Qua is good, but that's a really good record. It's more like kind of like what he was doing to Qua. So a few years back, Peter had a near death experience, and I asked him to elaborate on that. It was more than a health scare, really. I, I had to have a, a double bypass surgery. The health scare was at the very start of it where they checked me out and I'm like 99% blocked in my lower arterial descending artery so they uh, had to they wanted to do a stent but it was too far gone to do that and so I had to have a full double bypass and it was shocking uh, it was surprising the car was parked on an hour meter and I'd been my blood pressure had gone up to like a million so I knew there was something wrong and then uh, the med- I was already on medicine and it wasn't affecting it and then I went to this doctor and he's like well, I can't even let you go home 
so they just put me right into emergency and then they were trying to do the stent they couldn't do it and then they saved my life basically they saved my life and asked questions later at this Catholic hospital called St. John's in uh, Santa Monica so I really got to hand it to them and it was really intense nearly died took you know kind of they said if 20 more minutes you know I would have died uh, luckily there was a lot of support from his musician friends so I asked him about that a lot of support, you know, people really helped me out. And like, I didn't have insurance at the time. I'd had insurance when my kids were born and stuff, but then it had gone. I was no longer covered. Back then, uh, I don't even know if I could have gotten covered, but they did three days of benefits for me at, at McCabe's and Van Dyke and Richard Thompson and uh, Loudon Wainwright and T-Bone, Dave Alvin and Stan Ridgway all played for me. I don't think I left anybody out there. Uh, that was the main crew. And then there was like a bunch of other people that played too. And uh, they really helped me out. The bill was humongous. Like I almost had another heart on, you know, I almost had a meltdown just when the bill came. Oh, my heart, take me back to the hospital. <laughs> it's so terrible, man. But, but we got through it and it was really great. And like I thank Van Dyke. I'm like, Van Dyke, you know, this means thank you so much. He goes, Peter, this is what we do, you know, community. And so that is what we do. So Peter has a new single out. It's really cool. I got it at the show, and it sounds great. Here he is to talk about it. New single, yeah, that's a, that's a my first single in many years. This guy's called Need to Know Music, uh, Skunk Works slash Skunk Works. It's got it, you know, it's a single of a uh, an old blues song that I like to play, very popular one called Milk Out Blues, and then uh, the cover art's by this guy Lamar Sorrento, sort of a outsider artists, I guess they call them from down in Memphis, kind of much ballyhooed kind of genre, but no, uh, artist, I mean, a little single, you know, it's not, not a big uh, career move or anything, <laughs> but it's fun to have it, you know, it's cool. Peter had a Kickstarter program to record two new albums, and although the deadline's already passed and he met his goal, I thought it was still interesting to hear about how uh, the music industry is and why things like Kickstarter are important. That's how we do it these days because the record companies no longer put up money for records. And so I'm, I'm making, uh, I decided to try to do two at once. I thought it'd be kind of more interesting to have one with a full band and the other record like completely stripped down me playing solo. I don't know if we got about another, until September 21 to uh, raise a certain amount of money. And if we don't, we don't get any money and I'm going to uh, record the album on my phone and send it to my mother or somebody else, <laughs> not my mother, but... I'm really encouraging, you know, if you know my music and you want to support it, this is the way, to, this is really the way to do it. These days, this is how it has to happen, I, I guess, you know, because the record companies, they've kind of eluded their responsibility, you know, they've got it all worked out for them, but they don't really have it worked out for making new art or making new music. And so this is what we're doing. All right. Well, that's the conclusion of my interview with Peter Case. I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully my next podcast will be up fairly soon and spread the word and I'll see you next time.